Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. When I heard the latest reports on political party branch stacking in Victoria, this time in the Liberal Party, and following reports of branch stacking in Victoria's Labor Party earlier in the year, it did make me start to wonder what else might be going wrong in this state, as if the coronavirus situation wasn't enough. But of course, these things are complicated and not necessarily linked at all. Um, Maria Teflaga is at ANU and sees branch stacking as just one symptom of a political structure that in encourages the recruitment of professionalised politicians from narrowing groups and she's been suggesting a few approaches that could address the underlying situation of a lack of engagement with politics and uh, it's really great to have you on Triple R. Maria, welcome. Hello, welcome. Oh yes, thank you. And uh, we've heard a few reports this year about branch stacking in this state. Um, How well understood is it do you think and I suppose I'd be curious what you see as the worst behaviours associated with branch stacking. Right, yes, that's a, that's a really good question. So, so sort of, branch stacking sort of exists on a scale, if you will. So, so one man's branch stacking is simply aggressively recruiting new members to a political party and so long as those members are interested and pay for themselves to join, well, you know, that's all to the good. Parties have more members. But the kinds of, I guess, the reports that we're sort of seeing, these are sort of alleged cases in, in your state, uh, kind of relate to more nefarious um, kind of actions where people are being signed up to both parties uh, in this case um, who are not interested um, in the you know values or ideas of these political parties are uh, often not paying for their own memberships that's being paid for by people who have an interest in getting more um, members um, who don't live at the addresses that are reported where they live um, or sometimes don't even know that they've been recruited and are a member of, of these political parties. And so in, in those sort of latter instances, you know, that pretty, um, well, you know, if it's sort of found to be true, it's like a, it's basically a form of fraud. Yeah, and what's really interesting to me is that these sort of two headline stories that we've learned about over the past few months has been the result of investigative journalism and and Nick McKenzie over at The Age looking into this really closely. But, I mean, do you think it does suggest that these types of practices are quite widespread and perhaps aren't um, sort of only going on here in Victoria? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, This is definitely a problem of uh, political parties across the country. And um, I think it's probably the most under wraps in, almost contained rather, in Queensland because of the way... um, electoral rules are regulated there. They're regulated by the Electoral Commission and, uh, you know, if you're found to be branch stacking as a political party, you can actually face deregistration, which means you can't run in elections. Mm. So so they have a sort of third party um, sort of looking over the shoulder there about what is going on and that was because of endemic corruption, basically, in the 90s. Um, and uh, but what is sort of happening in most other states is that parties are 
in charge of managing their own affairs. And I think what is really interesting about the Liberal Party case is that they actually have pretty good rules. So it's it's not that they don't have good rules, it's that that these membership organisations are quite weak because they don't have very many members. And so even though they have pretty good rules and they they, they sort of try to kind of manage this problem of um, the potential of branch stacking by weighting um, smaller uh, branches, for example, or smaller district areas with fewer members, with like members from the sort of central committee that are effectively elected by the whole Victorian branch. So it's actually not that the Liberal Party has poor rules, it's just that even with good rules, if you don't have stringent enforcement or you don't have very many members, it's just much easier to, to launch a stack. And for listeners that don't really know what that means, is basically what it means is is, you know, if you've got like 15 members of a party who have diligently shown up to this branch every week or every month or whatever for the last sort of 10, 15 years, dedicated, um, you know, countless weekends to helping campaign for a political party. But, you know, I decide that I want to take over this branch and I recruit 20 of my uni mates and just show up. Um, and then we can just outvote the sort of old-time dedicated committee and take over this branch, and then I get those votes that let me select who the candidate will be, and I get the delegates or get to select the delegates that will go to the sort of state executive that elects the administrative council that is the thing that is in charge of enforcing these rules and dealing with disputes and deciding new rules. Yeah, it's a really interesting observation, Maria, because on the one hand, we've got, you know, relatively low trust in politicians and, um, you know, lowering numbers of people who are actually signed up members to political parties. But based on your analysis, there, there's kind of a suggestion almost that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy in some ways that the low membership base means that these types of branch stacking practices can take hold much more than they would if there was more sort of trust and direct involvement um, among Australians in, in uh, at least the two major parties. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Australians in general have been less interested in joining political parties than, say, their European counterparts, like, throughout you know, time, but um, the situation has gotten significantly um, worse right now because um, membership in this country stands at well below 2%, it's probably less than 1%, um, and so... Uh, you know, we're talking about tiny numbers of people who actually join political parties and the average age of those members is, is going up all the time. So I think the, the last report commissioned in, in the Victorian Liberal Party found that uh, the average member was around 71, 72 years old. The Labor Party isn't much better. They're a little bit younger, but sort of, you know, nationally around 65%. But we don't actually know how many members parties have because... They write their own rules about disclosure and, well, they prefer not to sort of have to disclose how low um, membership is. And um, and I think, like, political parties have effectively been in charge of trying to fix their own houses and they've been talking about the same things for about 20, 30 years, which relates to, oh, well, we need to get more members in, we need to make membership more meaningful. But the reality is, is that... Um, you know, there's a sort of debate amongst scholars about whether or not parties even want members uh, because um, members 
might want representation. Members might want to say in things. Members might want to decide who the leader is. Members might want to control policy. And in this country, particularly in the Liberal Party, the Parliamentary Party has had um, a great say over over all of those decisions. Uh, and over time in the Labor Party, the members have lost the capacity to influence those decisions. That's so interesting. Uh, Maria Chaflaga is our guest. She's at School of Politics, um, Political Science and International Relations over at the ANU. And we're talking about branch stacking and, and corruption. And um, it's interesting you say there were the political parties what members do they want constituents? <laughs> That's um, more well, to the point. I think, I think they just they want they want, they need membership fees. They need people to give out how to vote cards, and they need to um, and they need to look like they represent a broad spectrum of the population. And in times past, I think that was a much sort of fairer representation. You know, like in the in the forties when the Liberal Party was set up in the fifties, and the Labor Party was sort of much the same, even though it's older um, you know people actually went to political party functions for for entertainment you know um, the working man might go down on a, on a Wednesday night to enjoy the young bucks debate the old greybeards and the um, you know you take your children your teenage children to the, the local liberal party fundraiser to meet a nice young man or, or boy or girl or whatever to um, you know suitable marriage material of the right type of person like that's literally what these sort of, the, yeah. you know, the sort of social glue of these organisations was. Yeah, it sounds like things are being done very differently these days, at least in relation to um, the kind of branch stacking that was revealed in relation to the, the Liberal Party around about a week ago. But in relation to these two events, there's been a federal takeover of Victorian Labor and the Liberal Party has referred these allegations to the Department of Finance to review the staffing arrangements that were kind of in association with that alleged branch stacking. What might we learn from this and, and are there kind of real prospects for change coming out of these types of reviews into branch stacking? So I think the the Labor one has a greater chance of producing a change um, simply because um, the central body of the ALP has pretty strong powers to force administrative or personnel changes um, but that will still be like an internal party matter. The, the referral to the finance department will probably find very little because the finance department will probably look at the contracts of these political staff um, and probably find it very difficult to determine whether or not people were actually spending all of their time locating community groups where they could find someone who would then give the names and addresses of people who attended these groups to then sign them up to the Liberal Party in this instance, that's what's been alleged, rather than, you know, helping out someone with um, access to Centrelink or trying to basically sort their citizenship, which is a lot of what electoral officers do. I mean, how so, relevant? No. Yeah. Um, how relevant do you think um, political parties, and particularly the major two in Australia, are going to be into the future, Maria? Do you think these kinds of practices will see a shift, perhaps in in the size and the influence of these parties? Ah, oh, that's a great question. So, um, unless the rules change, no, we won't see any difference because 
um, ultimately political parties, like the, the ones we have in particular, are really well institutionalised because of they get they get um, public funding for elections. And I'm not saying public funding is a bad thing. Like it's broadly speaking, quite a good thing, but it does favour everyone who is already in the system. Um, the political parties write the rules around public funding. They write the rules around disclosure. They've recently awarded themselves a lot more money to basically like improve their security, which is probably a good thing. But unless we sort of change the way Parliament is structured itself, the way we elect MPs, uh, if we don't shift any of the incentives, then no, there's no reason to expect anything would change because um, there's nothing really to replace it and all of these actors are entrenched. And in your piece for the conversation, you outline a number of ways that our democracy could potentially be made more representative. There's reference to things like citizen juries that have been used by local councils, for example, in in relation to certain issues, and also even sortition where people could be effectively selected at random to participate in the parliamentary process, um, you know, for a set term. Are there any instances around the world that you're aware of, of these types of, uh, I guess, inclusion of ordinary people in the actual democratic parliamentary process or is this something that hasn't really been trialled yet? So in the case of deliberative forums uh, sort of citizen juries that you mentioned in the first instance, they have been um, used, um, as you said, at the local government level, I think quite successfully in, in Melbourne, but um, quite importantly um, recently, I guess, in, in Ireland, uh, where um, they have been quite important in sort of seeing the constitutional changes around abortion, and uh, there's one other law that escapes me now, um, and in that case, it was um, the way to sort of... The politicians in the end came to quite like these deliberative forums where they basically randomly recruited people from the community. They paid them for their time quite handsomely, uh, put them up in hotels, all of that kind of stuff, and had them meet several times over a year on, on, you know, for example, abortion, and made sure that they had um, very representative uh, expert opinion, like, you know, people who could advise these juries. And then, you know, essentially these people were sort of workshopped to kind of talk to each other and and the net effect was is that, um, you know, they had kind of recruited from the population, I think, along the lines of public opinion, and uh, a certain portion ended up changing their minds, and that led to a referendum proposal to change the constitution to allow abortion, um, for example. And so that was basically a way around what has been an intractable political problem in Ireland, and in that case, it it was very it was specifically issue based and so that's one model another model which is sortition which i'm not sure has actually ever been implemented is where you essentially recruit except for like ancient greece um where you recruit um people from the population of duty um and you know you'd have to really think carefully about how long you'd want them to sit um in the chamber because it's obviously quite disruptive um and you'd also want to make sure you have enough 
of them because if you're recruiting randomly from the population, you're obviously going to get some outliers at either end. And if the number you recruit is high enough, then, you know, much like the Australian Senate now, it'll kind of wash out. But if you kind of recall when there was a big kerfuffle over people like Jackie Lambie or mm. Ricky Muir being elected, um, you know, on these tiny votes, and then people came after a time came to sort of view that, well, actually these 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 new members had been quite good in bringing a voice to Parliament that is is absent in its entirety, and that's kind of what sortition could kind of do. And I wouldn't suggest that we move to a total sortition model. Like I think you can actually probably um, like you'd probably want to do this in the Senate, for example, and you'd probably keep the number of party members we have there and then just supplement uh, randomly elected people as well. So you wouldn't want to get rid of parties because you don't. it's not that you don't want any professionalised politicians. The problem is, is that we pretty much increasingly only have professionalised politicians. Yeah, and that's the sort of um, swamp that you hear about sometimes um, in other people's politics. But I, I wonder, um, I mean, I, I love it that you're kind of thinking through these sorts of issues when there are just so many other things going on that we're having to grapple with day to day at the moment. Um, and I think, you know, I heard... Annabelle Crabb addressing this issue, journalist and commentator, um, calling it really insulting that politicians are spending their time stacking branches rather than dealing with the immediate health crisis or economic crisis, for instance. But I wonder if there's sort of disgust that comes out, um, or a lot of people would react with disgust to behaviour like this, is likely to entrench the issue that less than 1% of the population is actually engaging in in party politics. Do you you think that is a risk? Uh, Yeah, I do. And so, I mean, I think what's interesting is that, yes, people join parties less, but they are involving themselves in politics. So, you know, they they do that through single-issue campaigns, you know, they do that through change.org petitions, they do that through attending protests, they do that through sharing stuff on social um, media. And we we have sort of, like, until the pandemic, we actually did see that, especially at the local government level, like a new entrance entering parliament, sorry, uh, entering local government, and I think in your state in particular, the state government had to actually respond to this because all these people running for local council looking to make changes uh, on climate change, for example, at the local government level that the state government had to respond by creating like a framework to get to give these things a bit more structure and a bit more coherence so you didn't sort of have all of these local councils kind of going off in all different directions to sort of structure it a bit more creatively and coherently into into action. So people, I think, are really frustrated with politics as it is, but not the idea that they can make change. And, um, and that's, I guess, why, like, the institutions that we have right now, you know, were designed for a, a different time when people participated in politics quite differently. And we just need to sort of renovate our institutions to sort of bring people back in and the, the important thing for your listeners to understand is, is that whatever we decide to do, it is a trade-off, right? So, you know, if you introduce sortition, like, you will get certain people who you really dislike because you're randomly pulling from the population, right? Um, if we do deliberative democracy by issue, well, you know, the politicians may still collude to not talk about issues that really need to be talked about. So it's, it's about 
the like how you change the rules changes the incentive structure changes the behavior of of actors like political actors or politicians but citizens as well and you know like there is no utopian magic solution it's just would i prefer these outcomes with some of these negative consequences or those outcomes with some of these negative consequences all really interesting things to think through as well as we contemplate what kind of society might we 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 might live in on on the other side of the pandemic as well it's been i'm great having your insights today maria and um thanks so much for joining us on triple r my pleasure Maria Teflaga there from the School of Political Science and International Relations at the Australian National University, talking all about the functioning of representative democracy in the wake of those branch stacking allegations, um, the revelations really that uh, came out last week in relation to the Liberal Party following a very similar story uh, impacting Victorian Labor as well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Peace Crimes is a very aptly titled book which explores the motivations of peace activists to bring attention to Pine Gap, which is that joint US defence facility located less than 20k west of Alice Springs. Uh, Pine Gap's been operating in the heart of Australia for over a uh, half century now and is part of Australia's role in the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, uh, which includes the US, UK, Canada and New Zealand. And there are hundreds of people who work there, yet few of us really know what role it plays. Kieran Fanane is a journalist and author and founding um, founder of the Alice Springs News and she has followed the trial of six activists who breached the perimeter of the base um, which is really closely guarded and she joins us from the NT and it's really great to have you with us. Kieran, welcome. Oh, thanks very much for having me. And it's always really interesting to hear how a writer decides that a story is one for them. Um, Maybe explain why you wanted to cover the case of six peace activists who chose to enter the Pine Gap site. Uh, I covered it in the course of my work as a journalist with the Alice Springs News. I'm a founding journalist, by the way. There were, well, essentially the founding editor and myself were were a team until this day. Um, So in the course of my work, I covered this trial. Um, I've done quite a lot of work in the courts in Alice Springs, and I've written another book about um, that experience, Um, mainly focused on violence. I guess this case is focused on violence of a different order, violence visited on countries very far from our shores. Um, And so these peace activists trespassed on Pine Gap in 2016, lamenting the dead of war, and were arrested and charged under very draconian defence legislation that was drafted during the Cold War and essentially uh, intended to deal with saboteurs, spies and so on. The only people who've ever been tried under this legislation are peace activists and this group in 2017. So they've been two groups, uh, the first in 2005 and then this group in 2016, tried in 2017. And they defended themselves and um, did quite a remarkable job bringing a lot of information into the court about Pine Gap, even though they were foiled at every turn by the prosecution objecting to their 
uh, approach in this way, objecting to them bringing this kind of information before the jury, that they still ma manage to get a fair bit up, not for consideration in how they would be judged, but nonetheless, I heard it, everyone else in the court heard it, the jury heard it, and there was a lot there that I felt, including their character, their determination, uh, the way they live their lives, that I felt would make a great story. And so, yeah, mm. and, yeah, and, and it's an absolutely fascinating story. And you've been in, in Alice Springs for some time, and it's it's interesting to me um, from sort of reading your book that this was, I guess, really the first time, um, to my knowledge, that you'd really focused in on the story of Pine Gap. How is it kind of internalised, and how do people relate to it who live in Alice Springs? Because, of course, many people might have some connection to it, but we don't tend to hear a whole lot about Pine Gap in the kind of day day-to-day news cycle? Uh, yeah, not at all. And it's very hard, actually, to pursue day-to-day -day news in relation to Pine Gap because it, it is very secretive. It does not leak. There has never been a significant leak from Pine Gap. Um, and your questions to defence, uh, so there's no way of um, dealing directly with people. You have to go through the Department of Defence, and these days it never gets further than the media managers and uh, you just get the one-line answer. You know, we do not comment on intelligence matters, even if your questions have got nothing to do with intelligence. For instance, recently I tried to ask about the protocols um, in place for dealing with their comings and goings from the base from overseas um, in relation to COVID-19. Nothing, not one iota of information. So we're in the fortunate position up here of not having uh, had any cases for a long time now. Um, but let's just say that uh, it, it was in our community. For us not to have that information, I think, is a real infringement of our right to know, let alone um, the information about the parameters of their actions um, which I think all Australians have a right to know. I'm not talking about, you know, particular operations, but what are the parameters? What what are we agreeing to being done in our name? Uh, you know, are we on board for participating in drone attacks um, with high levels of collateral damage that obscene term, meaning that people who are not the intended targets are dying, um, innocent people, we, we can assume. Um, so, yeah, it's very hard to penetrate. So not having any, not being able to get answers is a way of keeping it out of the news cycle if we let it. And I'm just lately have been determined whenever questions arise to, to put them, even though I have little faith in being able to get answers. Yeah, interesting but, that you do that. Um, yeah. I mean, before we go to the kind of bigger questions that you just raised there, I'd love to return just to the day-to-day -day in Alice Springs. And you do write really early in your book uh, that uh, very rarely do people, you know, embarrass the staff uh, and of, you know, Australian and American staff that work at Pine Gap with questions about what they, their job is or anything like that because, of course, these people are sending kids to school in the community and so forth. Are you, 
uh, is that still the case or are, are people asking more uncomfortable questions these days with, with you know, bringing attention to Pine Gap more regularly? There might be some braver individuals out there who do. I am not aware of them. Um, my own experience has been, um, and, you know, I wasn't being deliberately provocative of a, and it's, I was asking an Australian woman who worked there just about whether she was um, able to use, well, she was a trained helicopter pilot, as I recall, and I just said something light like, um, are you able to use that skill in your new job and I assumed that she wouldn't be able to. Anyway, it just completely froze the conversation. She turned her back on me and would not. I was happened to be sitting next to her at a function and she would not engage with me for the rest of the evening. So, yeah. I suppose that's it's, how you prevent leaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tight, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've heard from uh, someone else in the community who – knew a person, was very friendly with someone who worked at Pine Gap, and he sent a group email to all his contacts about um, Hiroshima Day event that he was organising. And that had the repercussion of this friend cutting him from his contact. You know, like not even be able to remember that day, for that to be interpreted as somehow a threat to security. I just find that extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean, as we mentioned, the book does really hone in on the experience of these six um, peace pilgrims activists who trespassed on the base in 2016. Uh, what kinds of people are they? And I guess what did they want to achieve by trespassing on the base and conducting a nonviolent protest in the way that they did? Well, they are very serious and um, some of them very seasoned, nonviolent, direct action activists um, on a range of issues, but particularly peace. Um, they are, uh, they describe themselves as spirit led. Um, so, in there was, there were two trials that I covered. One was of a group of five, all of whom are Christians. Four out of the five are Catholic workers. So that's an organization that started in America uh, during the Depression, very focused on the needs of the poor, but always coupled with peace activism. And um, the, so it's very small in Australia, the Catholic worker movement, and very focused, it would seem, in and around Brisbane. And um, some of them were involved in running what is called a house of hospitality there, which is a large house that keeps its doors open to people in need, be they, you know, socially isolated, hungry, poor, um, disturbed, or refugees. Um, so they're incredibly focused, compassionate, um, disciplined, but generous and warm and funny. I must say their life seems to have a very good return on happiness despite it, its rigours. Um, I found them an incredibly optimistic, buoyant group of people. Yeah, and, and so what led them to participate in this specific protest? I mean, was there a, a particular outcome or end they wanted to achieve by uh, trespassing on the base? Um, so... 
it was uh, drawing attention to what goes on at the base, I guess. So they went in. Um, they believe in this idea of putting your body on the line when nothing else seems to be possible. Do this. Go to a place uh, in your with your physical presence and do what you can to draw attention and disrupt, you know, business as usual. Um, so they do these kinds of actions, for instance, um, during the Talisman Sabre War Games up in Queensland, um, but also here at Pine Gap. So they went on at night, walking through the night, through bushland, and quite a feat, um, a dark night, no torches, um, trespassed onto the base, lamenting the dead of war. They were play, playing music, a lament that they had composed. They were praying. And um, they, they must have known that arrest was highly likely and that the charge under this heavy duty legislation was highly likely. And, and that's what they faced. And so then they, they did the court case um, and, again, made the most of that to draw attention to what they were doing and why. And I suppose the fact that they captured... Um, my attention and I followed through with the book um, is, you know, expands even further that opportunity to um, make other Australians aware, more aware of what's going on at Pine Gap. Because although I draw on open source information, um, it, it's all uh, has been out there in the public domain for quite a while. I think drawing it together around this strong narrative of, of these interesting people and this very oppressive trial that they went through um, does wake people up to what, what is happening there. We're speaking with Kieran Fineen, and she's journalist and author of Peace Crimes, which uh, really takes us um, on a journey uh, with six activists who were charged for penetrating the perimeter of the Pine Gap uh, Joint US Defence Facility, which is located west of Alice Springs. And um, tell us about the sixth person that was charged under this um, Act legislation. I will. I just have to correct you there about um, Pine Gap. It's actually south, and I guess you'd say oh, sorry, southeast south. of Alice Springs, not west. Sorry, apologies. Um, and just another term that's used all the time is is joint. It's the, that's the official name, joint defence facility. Um, but I really I use the term military base, and it is a US military base. It, the US control it. Um, they largely fund it, and um, that has always been the case and if, if I chase it, you up with that like why, why is it important do you think that we use different terms because I think there are other terms you bring up in the book about you know spy base and things like this that um, some names given to Pine Gap make it sound um, more playful perhaps than it, it certainly is yes so yeah in, in Alice Springs and I think possibly elsewhere too I think it's out of sight out of mind in Alice Springs most of the time and in Australia most of the time and it is all of our responsibility to become more aware of what it does in our name um, but in Alice Springs yeah it's often talked about in a rather joking manner and um, with anecdotes of the kind that I've told you before about trying to get people to talk about it or relax about it even I don't know why we should relax about it though 
Um, so, yeah, spy base, you know, sort of keeps it in the sort of Cold War era kind of mythology, I suppose. Um, I think people have been very unaware because their personnel are not don't wear uniforms, they're not armed, been very unaware of how it has its role has militarized, and that's an important part of, of what I um, bring together in the book, based on the researches of other investigative journalists and um, the academic researchers, as well as the leaked documents of Edward Snowden. Um, so, and space base, you know, that relates to its foundation when um, it was called the, I think it was the Joint uh, Space Research Facility. And yeah, it wasn't researching space, it was always collecting signals from satellites yeah. from the get go. And, and I guess given that some of that information has been out there, and I mean, it is not necessarily easy to find information about Pine Gap, but there are the Edward Snowden leaks that you referred to that um, point to the complicity of Pine Gap in uh, US drone strikes, for example. And there have been sort of other reports of, of what it's doing and the nature of how it's evolved in its use and, and significance over time. Why do you think then that given that information sort of has been published Public, um, previously that there's still this fairly blasé uh, kind of relationship or perception that many Australians have about Pine Gap and, and its broader geopolitical significance? Uh, again, I think it goes to the secrecy, um, also the complacency in Australia around the alliance with the US on the assumption that that delivers safety to our country. I don't know why we're uh, not able to um, successfully challenge that assumption. It just seems to me that a lot of the um, dangers that we're facing now, I mean, this isn't an original point at all, a lot of people think this, have been generated out of um, dangerous action led by the United States internationally. Um, so, yeah, for all those reasons... Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, you say, uh, Kieran, around you know perceptions or a blasé attitude. I mean, we've spoken many times on this program with Tillman Ruff, and he uh, is part of a group ICANN that won the the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for um, their work. Uh, um, globally to to raise um, awareness uh, and I've just uh, the the name of the um, petition nuclear ban the treaty nuclear ban treaty it just left my mind for a moment I mean you um, mentioned that group in your book and actually the front cover of um, peace crimes is um, somewhat connected to those sort of big global um, peace movements as well. Yeah, very much so, and, and connected to Tillman Ruff. Exactly. <laughs> being his son, Christian Lamley Ruff, who I think has made a remarkable contribution with that image. Um, that image, actually, before I even covered the trial, and I give an account of that in the book, really did stir my conscience around Pine Gap. And I, um, that is an important point, too, that it's not just um, political um, analysis and thinking um, that I think gets us to the point of really being um, able to challenge Pine Gap. I think there's there are elements of ethics or morality um, and that photograph that's on the front cover 
well, it became a work of art. The photograph itself is magnificent um, and warrants thinking about this extraordinary feat of technology, I suppose, in this ancient landscape as, as the day is coming and what all of that means. And then um, Christian presented it as a work of art with the intervention of bars across the front of the photo. And it makes you, well, for me, think about where he must have been in the landscape to take it and where I am essentially as somebody who lives so close to the facility, where I am in relation to it and, and therefore wake up, you know, what's going on there at least think about it, talk about it, ask questions about it, um, challenge our government to become more accountable about what Australia's involvement is and means for our country and our place in the world. And in any contact you've had with the peace pilgrims in the aftermath of um, their court trial, how do they reflect on their activities and, and what has come from it in terms of raising awareness about Pine Gap um, internationally? Oh, they are, yeah, I do stay in touch with them. Um, and, yeah, they're pretty thrilled, I think, with the, the book and um, taking advantage of it um, to try to build momentum in the peace movement. Um, so they organised an event in Brisbane around the book and it was an exhibition um, and a webinar and so on, uh, an exhibition of objects in the books. That, so the photograph, um, the various political banners, which are very well done, um, a barbed wire crucifix that was used in the 2005 action, so various memorabilia of their actions. But then the next day they went and organised an action outside Boeing in, in Brisbane. Um, so behind these big uh, aeronautical brand names are, of course, um, weapons manufacturers. You know, Boeing is a serious weapons manufacturer and um, they were drawing attention to that on the very next day and there will be there will be more that they'll do off the back of the book yeah, yeah and they don't let this go yeah and, and I'm interested as well in um, I guess the the sway that the Australian government has in relation to the use of Pine Gap, I mean, you speak to experts in the course of putting this book together as well, and I'm, I'm sure in your journalism, is there a sense that Australia does have a lot of say over what exactly it is or, or can be used for in relation to, for example, drone warfare? Um, I don't think um, the major parties particularly want to confront their responsibility in relation to that. I mean, they are just like bib and bub on these questions. Um, there's no transparency and no accountability through the parliament, and so that leaves it to civil society to mount the pressure. Um, oh, sorry, I've lost track of what you asked me. I, I, think, I think we're at bib and bub. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are at bib and bub. Um, was your question about accountability? Yeah, and and the level of say, I guess, the Australian government has over what exactly Pine Gap is used for, given its historic relationship with the United States. Yes, yeah. 
So in the book, um, I asked the researcher Richard Tanter about, you know, what practically um, could happen um, if we Australia decided, okay, we do not want to participate in these drone strikes. Would it be possible to to do that? And he says, you know, technically, very much so, because Australians are involved in the tasking schedules each day and could say, no, we are not going to be watching that person or that group from this facility. That, that's not an arena that we're going to go into today. But to get the political will and the popular momentum that would push for our politicians to assert a more independent foreign policy, that is the big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, absolutely fascinating read. Um, congratulations on the book, on getting it out there, and hope um, you manage to have some launch events as well up in Alice Springs. We envy anybody who can have um, events in person down here in Victoria. Um, so congratulations. So sorry for what you're going through. Um, and it has been launched in Alice Springs. We had a wonderful launch event here. Fantastic. Oh, well, well, uh, we, we live vicariously, so I'm glad that happened. <laughs> but we're very happy to be speaking about it on radio here in Melbourne. And um, if people are wanting to chase up the story, and there's so much more to it. It's called Peace Crimes. And Kieran Fanane is the author. She's journalist and author and uh, of the book. And she is a founding journalist of the Alice Springs News. And I, um, I'm just going to correct all the mistakes I made this morning. Of course, Pine Gap, southeast of Alice Springs as well. (laughs) And thank you very much, um, Kieran, for your time this morning. It's been really great speaking with you. Uh, Very enjoyable speaking with you. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Well, and you can get Peace Crimes out now through um, University of Queensland Press. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.